Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Thank you, Phil. Good morning, everybody. It is cold in Pretoria. Wow, I thought uh, we were heading into winter in the Cape, but wow, it's cold here. Um, I'm glad Phil um, said that I'm not in full-time ministry, and I probably preach about once or twice a year, so um, please bear with me. Um, I actually was reminded of the first time I ever preached was on a mission, on the same mission trip with Phil, and um, it was an absolute nightmare. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we were doing an outreach somewhere near Grayton, and I had been given the opportunity to share for like 20 minutes, and I thought I was prepared, but the moment I got on stage, I think I just remember rambling for about five minutes, and then Phil, as he does, swooped in to save the day, and some people actually received something from the Lord that day, uh, not necessarily from me, but hopefully this morning goes a lot better, so... Um, you know, as Phil mentioned, um, uh, I'm uh, working a corporate job in uh, tax consulting um, and part of the church in Shofar, Durbanville. Um, I, I grew up Catholic, um, didn't know anything about what happened this morning. First time I experienced it, I was very scared and freaked out. Um, and I got saved in my room in Res at Stellenbosch University listening to a worship CD. I just experienced the presence of God for the first time in my life um, and just broke down on my bed there in Simonsberg residence. And um, yeah, I think the presence of God has been the mark on my life from that moment um, forward and joined the church the next year, Shofar um, Stellenbosch in about 2003 when I met Phil. Um, and since then, I've been a part of Shofar Cape Town for about 12 years. Um, we're involved in the church plant there, and then the last four years, we moved to Durbanville. I think there's a picture up there of my family that we've left at home. I've been married to Gabby for 14 years now. I am as old as I look. I do get called the band grandpa in Shofar Band. Um, and Hannah and Lily are seven and, and nearly six. Um, yeah, I'm going to pray for us um, before we begin. Father, you've already done so much this morning in our hearts, and we just acknowledge that you are here, that you are Emmanuel, you are with us in this room, in this place, in our hearts, in our lives. You are so faithfully with us. And God, we recognize this morning that the pace of life is so quick and so fast, and we become so busy that we neglect moments like this where we can just stop and slow down and fix our eyes again upon you, and that's what we want to do this morning. We want to come and be reminded of who you are, of your worth, and how precious you are, how you are everything to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and bring revelation of Jesus to our hearts again this morning. Cause our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to know Him deeper and more intimately in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Uh, I've titled the sermon, Is He Worthy? Uh, I think it's quite a redundant question if you've read Scripture. Um, and we all know the wonderful song by Andrew Peterson. Um, he is worthy. I'm just going to tell you guys the answer to the sermon now. But um, I think this question, is he worthy, is, is a fundamental question that each one of us needs to have answered in our hearts. Um, there's certainly days where I don't feel like worshiping, days when I don't see the faithfulness of God. I struggle to see it. Um, and in those days, what do I fall back on? Um, what is the bedrock that I land on in those days? And today I just want to share some of those truths with you um, that I fall back on in those moments to remind myself of the infant worth of God and the riches that we have in Christ. And just to touch on two things, I think, just to remind us again as we start what we actually have in Christ and what we have in His Spirit. And to do that, I want us just to rewind a little bit and go all the way back to, um, to Exodus, to the tabernacle of Moses. Um, there's a couple of pictures up there. I managed to I always say I got this one from uh, Moses' Instagram account. Um, it's at Desert Life if you want to. <laughs> Give him a follow. Um, but uh, so in Exodus 25, um, God gave Moses uh, very specific instructions for the tabernacle. Uh, it was literally a portable dwelling place for the presence of God as the Israelites moved through um, the desert. And we know there was the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. And as that moved, they would pack up this tent uh, and, and it would move with them. It was incredibly detailed. I just want to talk you through very quickly the sections. So from the right, um, the altar there where the priests would make the offerings on behalf of the people um, to cleanse them from their sin, the, the bronze laver where the priests would wash themselves before going into the actual tent which had a roof and that had two sections, the one called the holy place where there was an altar of incense, a table of showbread and then the golden menorah. Um, the lampstand, and then there was a very thick curtain, the veil, and behind that uh, was the Ark of the Covenant, which really represented the presence of God, um, and that was called the Holy of Holies, and only once a year, on one day, uh, was the high priest allowed to go beyond that veil and into the holy place, the Holy of Holies, to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Um, so, I mean, it, only one person was allowed into the presence of God on one day a year in that um, temple. And uh, I think for me what that gives us really is a revelation of the, the holiness and the order of God, um, that He wanted to make that clear to Israel, this is who I am, uh, I am holy, and what type of preparation is required for someone to come into His presence. And I think that's an important revelation for us because I think the cross and grace and what we have now almost deteriorates in value if we don't have that revelation of how holy God actually is. Um, moving on from the tabernacle of David, so the ark uh, which was inside the, the, holy, the holy of holies was taken um, from Israel. They thought it was a good idea to 
take the ark out of the, the temple onto the battleground when they were doing battle with the Philistines at one point, and the ark was stolen. Um, and the Philistines put it in a temple of one of their gods, and we know the story where their god Dagon, he falls down in front of the ark like this big statue. Um, and the people start getting uh, diseases and all kinds of things, so they are a little bit freaked out. And they decide to send the ark back to Israel uh, on an ox cart. Um, it's then stored in the house of Abinadab. That's a fun one to try and say quickly. Abinadab. Uh, and then put in the house of Obed-Edom where it stayed for a while. And, and David was king at this point, And what he was doing was busy building the, the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Um, and once that was ready, they took the ark from the house of Obed-Edom um, into the temple, in uh, the, the tabernacle, sorry, that David had built in, um, in Jerusalem. And um, the amazing story, but we, we know before that, uh, when they were moving the ark around, uh, people tried to just uh, put it on a, an ox cart. And we know the story of Uzzah who re reached out his hand and touched the ark and he was struck down. So David recognized that the Levites were the ones who were supposed to carry the ark on poles. And um, in moving it from Obed-Edom's house into this temporary tent he had made in Jerusalem, uh, scholars say that distance was about six kilometers uh, that they had to walk. And the scripture there in Second Samuel uh, says that they sacrificed two animals every six steps that they took uh, over six kilometers. Uh, that, this via Breifleis. That is a lot of bry, um, but just the extravagance of David and his worship. So while they were building the temple, he had this temporary tent set up, which we referred to as the Tabernacle of David, where the ark was for about 33 years. And um, what happened inside David's tabernacle was very different to the Tabernacle of Moses, um, in that the ark was in the center, and... There were Levites, musicians around the ark, um, ministering to the Lord 24 hours a day. So there was no veil that separated the people from the ark. And there were also no um, animal sacrifices. Um, it says there that David selected 4,000 musicians and 288 singers. I don't even want to imagine trying to put that band roster together. Um, it's a lot of people, but day and night, without ceasing, they would bring worship and praise um, and prayers to God. And I think, for me, David's tabernacle is very prophetic, at least of two things. The one is what Jesus would do on the cross in tearing the veil. Um, scripture says there in Matthew 27, verse 51, that the physical veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Um, as he died on the cross. So God bridging that gap and taking away the separation between him and his people. Um, and the second picture is the one Jason read from this morning uh, in Revelation 5. Uh, the picture we see of Jesus in the center uh, of heaven, in all of heaven, all the angels, all the creatures around him uh, worshiping without ceasing day and night. Um, the beautiful scripture there in Revelation 21.3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Um, there's a, the promise of God um, in Amos 9.11, um, something that 
is a bit of a life scripture for me, but it's a promise of God to restore the tabernacle of David. Um, and that's really something that I'm passionate about, seeing, you know, the, the worth of God and the revelation of God restored again in our hearts. Um, so that's Moses and David, but we aren't in either of those tabernacles this morning. So where are we? And there I want to take us to, to John 4, um, the story we all know very well of the woman at the well. Um, Jesus is uh, moving through the area of Samaria, and his disciples have gone off to get some lunch. He is sitting at the well, uh, and a woman comes in. We all know he asks her for a drink, um, and he shares about the living water uh, that he can give her. I just want to read from um, verse 16 there. It says, uh, he told her, go and call your husband and come back, um, Jesus speaking to the woman. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And I, I love the moment the woman is confronted. She immediately almost becomes very religious. and says, oh, so I see that you are a prophet. Um, I just so identify with that in a way. Um, but she says, yeah, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus responds, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And what we see with Moses and with David's tabernacles is that they were physical places. You had to get up and go there um, to worship. And what Jesus is saying here um, is that when the Spirit is poured out uh, at Pentecost, that the place of worship is changing. The place of worship is no longer a temple or a physical place. Uh, worship is no longer defined by a location, but it is in the Spirit. And the beautiful thing about that is that wherever you are is the right place to worship. Um, wherever you are is the appropriate place to worship God. Um, just a story, uh, two stories, I guess, from that, from my own life. Um, I am a CA and did articles. Uh, it's, it's a horrible journey. It really is hard work. Are there any other CAs in the house? I know Dylan is busy with his articles. He's in the trenches. Um, but it was about four months into my articles, and we w we'd worked, I think it was about 14 days in a row uh, through Easter, um, like 12 to 15-hour days. And there was just such a heaviness, like, on the team and in the room where we were sitting at the client. And um, I just felt the one morning to go in really early and just to worship in the room. I mean, I was there, like, half past five. There was nobody there. We had access to the client's premises. And just worship the Lord for half an hour. I just exalted the name of Jesus in the room. And it is impossible to explain how different it was the day that morning when people came in, like there was just night and day, the difference between the way we interacted with each other, how things would go, 
Um, the other story is um, with uh, when my wife was pregnant with our first daughter. She was 13 weeks pregnant, um, and we we struggled for about three years to fall pregnant. And we arrived at a small group, uh, parked the car, and as my wife got up, there was just um, blood all over the car seat, uh, and we obviously knew something was wrong and told our small group to pray. We drove to the hospital, um, and obviously thinking, you know, this is, this is it, it's over, you know, um, definitely a miscarriage, and my wife went in, they had a look, I was stood there with the nurse, and she said, no, I'm pretty sure this is a miscarriage, but let's just call the gynae, uh, and I went to stand in the uh, waiting room. And again, you know, this revelation of right now, I can lift up the name of Jesus in this place. Um, and I remember walking around there praying in tongues. I'm sure people thought I was possessed or something. Um, but just said, you know, over my daughter, we didn't know it was a daughter at the time, but just saying, you will live and not die in the name of Jesus, that God is greater than this, that he's able to redeem this. Um, and just worship God in that moment that I could access the presence of God in that moment. The gynae came, uh, she did a scan, and she said, everything is fine. You've got nothing to worry about. Um, and yeah, my daughter's now seven. Um, but just amazing that we have access to the presence of God anywhere, wherever you are, whatever situation you find yourself in. We have unfettered access. Um, and... Uh, yeah, the beautiful thing with Jesus, Hebrews is an amazing book, but um, he completely fulfilled that Old Testament model of worship. He became not only the high priest, but he became the sacrifice himself in giving himself up uh, on the cross. Um, and I just want to challenge us this morning not to neglect the privilege that we have to access the presence of God. And you don't have to be musical. You don't have to be able to sing. You know, you can read a psalm. You can simply stand there and just acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Um, just declare who He is over your situation. Um, the second point I, I just want to touch on is why we should worship Him. And I think, you know, it's impossible for me to fully and adequately do justice to the infinite attributes of Jesus. Um, but I just want to remind us again of a few of those, of why. Why should He be the focus of all of our adoration, all of our attention, all of our devotion, and all of our praise? Um, and I think taking a step back, it's important for us to remember our position apart from Christ. Um, who are we apart from Christ before God? And the reality is, as harsh as it sounds, is that we were the enemies of God, spiritually dead, eternally condemned forever cursed and permanently separated from Him with no hope of being able to save ourselves or to provide an adequate offering um, that would make atonement for our sins. And the only person who could do that was God Himself. In fact, I think, you know, if, if you think about it, God does owe us something, and that really is judgment and eternal damnation at, at the end of the day. <laughs> I know that's not something many people say these days, but uh, that is the reality. Um, I remember someone saying, uh, whenever someone asked them, how are you? Their response was, not fine, but 
in light of this, their response was, I'm better than I deserve. And I think that's stuck with me. Um, praise God that he didn't leave us there, but we know um, one of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that Jesus knew no sin. He was perfect in every conceivable way. His thoughts, his words, his actions were all perfectly aligned to the Father's will, always bringing honor and joy to the Father. And then on the cross, all of our wretchedness was placed on him. Every lie, every murderous thought, every hateful action, every injustice, every sin, every vile act of disobedience, every sickness, every disease, even death itself. He became sin for us. And he bore that so that we could know the Father. And what astounds me is that he didn't stop there, but he also gave us his righteousness. He also gave us his perfect relationship with the Father. Um, and because of that, the Father sees Jesus when he looks at us. There's nothing we can do uh, apart from that um, to make ourselves right before him. And I'm so grateful for my Catholic upbringing I mentioned um, just because there's such a heavy focus on the cross. Everywhere you look, there's a crucifix, and there's something called the Stations of the Cross you do during Easter, where if you go into a Catholic church, there's pictures all around uh, from kind of the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to the tomb. And the idea is that you stand there and look at the picture, and you just really meditate on the journey of Jesus from the garden all the way through the cross. And there's such a focus on the suffering and the passion of Jesus. Um, and I'm so grateful for that because I, I don't think we can ever become familiar with the cross. It's not like you get saved, you see the cross, there it is, and now you move on to kind of deeper and more spiritual things. Um, and I think because of that, we regularly need to posture our hearts and really meditate on the cross. Um, there's so many beautiful songs. I love hymns uh, and have a few hymnals at home, and I love to just read through them. Not that we really get to sing many of them in church anymore, but I wanted to read you just a couple of verses um, from two hymns. One is called, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, but it's just the depth of, of seeing again and reminding ourselves of what Jesus went through for us. So, this says, uh, O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrendered, with thorns, thine only crown. How pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage languish, which once was bright as morn? What thou, my Lord, hast suffered, was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, it is I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor, vouchsafe me to thy grace. There's another one we actually do sing, uh, which is when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. 
See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And something I can never get my head over, especially becoming a parent now, is a scripture in Isaiah 53.10, which says that it was the Father's good plan to crush him, that it pleased the Father to bruise him, and that it was the will of the Father that he should suffer. Um, a 19th century preacher um, who was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, his name is Octavius Winslow, but he said it so well. He said this, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. And this is the love of God for us this morning. Um, I want to also just read a, a scripture from Hebrews 1, um, which says this, In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also made the universe. And this is the part where you hold on to your seats. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature, the representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And I just love that, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature. And I think about, we all know the story of Moses, where he kind of gets the audacity to ask God, show me your glory. Uh, and God says, well, hang on, uh, glory will kill you, so let's just, I'll show you my goodness. Um, and God puts him in the cleft of the rock and hides him with his hand as he walks past, and he allows Moses to see his back um, and, you know, we know the disciples said to Jesus, show us the Father. But here, here it is. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And we get to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Second um, Corinthians 4, 6 says. Another attribute of Jesus um, that I love is in Philippians 2, um, I won't read the whole scripture, um, but we know that it says because of Jesus' obedience, because of his humility and his suffering and his death, God has given him a name that is superior to every other name, that his name is above every other name. His name is so superior that there is coming a day where every tongue will confess that he is Lord and every knee will bow before him. No one will be able to stand before him. All will be bowed down. All will confess that He is Lord. And what a privilege it is for us now and this morning to be able to willingly bow before Him and confess His Lordship. Jason read uh, from Revelation 5 this morning, um, but that is also one of my all-time favorite scriptures. Just, again, seeing what's happening with worship in heaven and that we get to add our voices um, to that. Uh, I'm not going to read that scripture uh, again as well. Um, but I, the, the last scripture I read before I get to um, the, the next point is um, just from, from Job 38. And man, if anyone had a rough time in scripture, it is Job. Um, I don't know how he did it, but uh, I just love um, 
how he complains and his friends complain for 30 chapters. And then out of the whirlwind, chapter 38, God comes. Uh, this is quite a long uh, part of Scripture, but I just want to read this. Um, I love God's response, uh, just reminding us again of who he is. Um, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Hey, I don't want to hear that anytime. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no further and here your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? This just goes on and on and on. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen where the storehouses of hail are, which I have reserved for the time of trouble and for the days of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed and where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? The poor guy just really gets it for a few chapters. Um, but I think in the end he realizes how small and how powerless he is in relation to God and how God is in complete control. And um, I love nature and I love science and statistics and the outdoors and I find what often helps me to worship is actually just to do this, to remind myself of how small I am and, and insignificant in light of who God actually is. And I love that we're in this building today. I love old church buildings and cathedrals. And for the simple reason that when you walk in, your eyes are immediately just drawn up. If you just look at this roof um, and everything in here, it's just a reminder, you know, that we're actually not that big. Um, it's good to feel small in a building like this for that reason. Um, but so please forgive me as we get to the close and take a short left turn into some astronomy um, and the relative size of our small planet uh, and the relative size of our lives in comparison to God. Um, so we don't really know the right number, but... The number of stars we estimate in the known universe, so that's kind of how far we can know and calculate, uh, is a completely meaningless number to us. It's a one with 21 zeros, a 10 to the power of 20. Um, and I sat, as I do, in front of an Excel spreadsheet most days and, and tried to just bring this number to home. Like, how many is that? How many stars is that? So I thought to myself, okay, if what's the smallest thing I could think of that you could actually see? So I thought, okay, a pinhead. Let's say a pinhead is like a millimeter, a cubic millimeter. Um, 
if every one of those stars was a pinhead, again, that's irrelevant. There would just be a huge pile. So I thought, okay, an Olympic swimming pool, I can understand how big that is. 50 meters uh, by 25, and it's two meters deep. Okay, so if we throw all the pinheads in there, how many Olympic swimming pools of pinheads do you think we're going to fill up? Is everyone still with me? The stars are pinheads. They're going into the Olympic-sized swimming pool. The answer, again, just doesn't help us. It's 40 million swimming pools. I mean, it's just like, okay, you know. And I think what I love about this is that we get to points where our brains actually just can't comprehend the vastness anymore. Um, and I love that place, and I think we need to go there often uh, when we worship. Um, but so what? Who cares? Who cares about the stars? Uh, let's bring it home. And I love these scriptures. Isaiah 40, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name? How? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Psalm 33, 6, the skies were made by the Lord's word and all their starry multitude by the breath of his mouth. Okay, so that's a lot of stars. Let's bring this a little bit closer to home. We all know the sun. We see it most days. Um, so the sun is a million times bigger than the earth. Again, that's irrelevant to my brain. So I thought, okay, I play golf, a golf ball. If the earth is the size of a golf ball, the sun is a circle with a four and a half meter diameter. So from where I'm standing, we're about here. Okay, so the sun's pretty big, little golf ball. Um, not that you could, but if you got in one of our domestic airlines, it would take you about a month to fly from the surface of the sun to its center flying at about 1,000 kilometers an hour. Um, and the sun is actually just a very average star in our universe, believe it or not. Um, one of the biggest ones in our Milky Way galaxy has a great name, V.Y. Canis Majoris. Canis being dog, Majoris being big, the big dog. Um, so this star is a mere 4,900 light years away from Earth, um, and it is about 2.7 billion kilometers in diameter, okay? So <laughs> what does that mean? Sticking with our golf ball analogy, if the Earth is the size of a golf ball, this star is the height of Mount Everest, nine kilometers in diameter to my golf ball. Okay, the mind is now blown. Um, uh, the last thing I just want to chat about is the Milky Way galaxy, our little neighborhood where we live. Um, so the Milky Way galaxy is about 106,000 light years across. So what does that mean? You need to travel at the speed of light, which is that's seven and a half times around the Earth, 300,000 kilometers a second for 106,000 years, and you'll get to the other side. Um, but the Milky Way is actually minute compared to the known universe. 
So again, I was trying to bring this home for myself. How big is the Milky Way compared to the known universe? Is it like 1%? If the Milky Way galaxy was a 5 Rand coin, okay, we all know how big a 5 Rand coin is. The known universe is the size of the North American continent. So that's USA, Canada, and a couple of other countries added together. That's how big our galaxy is. Okay. Pretty small. Again, what does this mean? Uh, I love Isaiah 40:12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Um, so God measured the heavens with the span of his hand. The last picture I have up there is this one. Uh, it doesn't look like a picture. It looks like someone's camera has gone off in their pocket. Um, but this is a, a very famous picture if you are into astronomy. It's called the pale blue dot. Um, and after much convincing, my wife uh, allowed me to put it up in our house, believe it or not. It's in the study, so no one really gets to see it except me when I'm worshipping. But um, I just want to tell you a bit about this picture as we close. Um, so February 1990, Voyager 1 uh, is traveling through space at 64,000 kilometers per hour away from the sun. Um, it was launched in 1977, uh, so 13 years before that. And it was just passing Pluto. And as it was exiting our solar system, the scientists had to turn around and take a photo back towards uh, the Earth before carrying on its journey into nothingness. Apparently, it is still just traveling out into nothingness. Um, and as it turned, so it took a series of 60 pictures, each consisting of 640,000 pixels. And given it was six billion kilometers away from Earth. Uh, it took each pixel about five and a half hours to reach Earth. Now, if you think your Wi-Fi connection is slow, <laughs> six, yeah, 60 times 640,000 and five and a half hours for each one of those. So it was about three months until they got all the pictures back. And as they stitched all these pictures together, they noticed a small speck suspended in a shaft of sunlight on the right, you can see that little white dot there. That speck is our home. That is planet Earth taken from a distance of six billion kilometers away. And uh, a secular astronomer, Carl Sagan, famously said the following when he saw this picture. Um, and I have this quote underneath the picture, if you ever come to my house and want to see it. Um, it, he said this, look again, look again at that dot. That's here, that's home, that's us. On that dot, everyone you know, everyone you love, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who, was, who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, 
every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Now consider this, that in the incomprehensibly vast universe uh, that I've hopefully not bored you to death with, far bigger than our minds could understand or imagine, the Son of God, Jesus, the one who breathed the stars into existence and who, who sustains the universe by the power of his word, he came to that speck of dust as a man, born of flesh and lived out a perfect, sinless life that we could know him, that we could be with him in an intimate relationship with him. And um, just as we close, um, I want to just share a story. Uh, maybe, Jason, you can come up um, so long. Uh, so I mentioned my wife and I struggling to fall pregnant. Uh, it was re not relatively long compared to a lot of other people I, I know, but it was about three years. Um, and towards the end of that time, um, we didn't know we would soon fall pregnant. But I remember we we were in the Cape Town church and we'd driven into town and uh, there was some ministry afterwards and I remember the pastor said, you know, if you just have a hardness in your heart, uh, come forward. And I think we were both there. And I said to my wife, look, I think we should go up. And she just said, no, she can't right now. She's not in the place uh, where she can do that. Um, we just kind of sat there and church ended. We got in the car and we were driving home. Um, and she turned to me while I was driving and said, uh, you know, sometimes I wish you had married someone else so that they could give you children. Um, and I think that was one of the hardest things I'd ever heard. Um, and in that moment, you know, my immediate response to her was, you know, how could you say that? You know, I didn't marry you so that I could have children. I married you because I love you as a person. Uh, and whether we have kids or not is irrelevant, you know. I love you, and I'm with you. Um, I love you for who you are and not what you can do for me. Um, and sure, when we got home, I just felt God say to me, it's the same with me. It's the same with me. I don't want you to worship me for what I can do for you, but for who I am. And that's why this morning, I think, as I stand before you, if there's one thing I know in the depths of my heart, it's that He is worthy. He is worthy. And He's worthy of all that we have. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our lives, not because of what He can give us or do for us, but simply because He is God and we are not. A.W. Tozer said that He is unaffected by time or motion. God is wholly self-dependent and owes nothing to the world that His hands have made.
Father, this morning you are glorious. You are worthy of our worship. You are our prize. You are our treasure. You are our exceedingly abundant reward. Heaven is eternity in your presence, with you. At the end of all of this, we get you, Jesus. You are our treasure. You are our great gift. God, forgive us for days where we get so consumed with ourselves and things that occupy our minds and our time. God, remind us this morning that you are good, that you are worthy of our attention. You are so much more important than WhatsApp messages coming through on our phones, emails that need to be answered. God, help us to create space for you in our lives. Space again to be in awe and in wonder of you. You are worthy of our attention. You are worthy of our devotion. Just as we close, um, I just want to challenge you with two questions and really just allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts this morning with these two questions. What is it that you treasure above all things? And secondly, how can you slow down your life to make more space to be in awe and wonder of God and to treasure Him? I'm going to ask Phil um, just, yeah, just to close, to invite people up. If you feel like you need prayer or you want to pray with someone, um, you can come up to the front. There'll be some people here to pray with you as well. Um, but thank you so much for allowing us and me to minister to you this morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.